Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I was um, praying about the service this evening, and, and the Lord really dealt with me about, uh, really laid it on my heart to talk about being strong in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's uh, um, Before we start talking about the, the real meat of what we want to get to, the fact that Paul says, finally is an indication from the Greek language that this is the most important part of the letter. Now, if you look at the things that he wrote in the earlier chapters, of course, he didn't write chapter and verse, but uh, uh, it's divided that way for reference sake. If you look at the things that he talked about, he talked about some extremely important doctrines, extremely important points and issues. He talked in chapter 1 about being ordained of God from the beginning of the world. He talked about the prayer that he prayed for the churches, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we'd know the hope of his calling and so forth. He talked about the doctrine of election. He talked about being strengthened for any and every situation that we encounter in life. He talked about ministry gifts. He talked about the way to live a Christian life and walk out of Christianity by putting away lying and so forth. And of all the things that he talked about, he says, now finally, here's the thing that I really want to leave you with. Save this for last because this is most important. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, I want you to notice the phrase, in the Lord. Never does the Bible tell you to be strong in yourself. But it does tell you to be strong in the Lord. Now, let's take this apart for, for just a moment. And forgive me if, this, if I want to be Captain Obvious here. But um, uh, we know that the word in means to be contained in. It's a location word. It means to be inside of or to be contained in something. So he's saying the strength that we are to have is in the Lord. It's located and contained in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. The power that we need, the power that overcomes any and everything that the devil will ever throw at us, the power that you need to overcome sickness and disease, the power that you need to overcome financial attacks in your life, the power that you need to overcome depression or any and every other attack of the enemy comes from within the Lord. That's where the power is. Now, the same phrase is used when it talks about us being in Christ some 65 times in the New Testament. See, you're in the same place that the power is. You're in the same place that the strength is located. You're just as inside Christ as the power of God is. It's your companion. It's where you are. And what Paul is saying, and I believe this is the reason why he chooses this to be the the last and most important thing that he leaves with the church. And this is a knowledgeable knowledgeable church. The the church at uh, at Ephesus is the mega church of the day. It's the famous church. It's, it's, uh, uh, It's everything that a church would want to be. And of this church that knows everything, the church that's, that's got all the big-name celebrities and everybody coming through and preaching and so forth, he says to this church, this is the most important thing you need to know. Of all the doctrines that I've taught you before, of all the things that I left with you when I started the church years before, of all the things that you're going to be taught when Peter teaches there, when Timothy teaches, Timothy is the pastor, when your pastor teaches to you, when others come through, when John comes through and he preaches there, Of all the things you learn, this is what you need to know. You have within your reach, at your disposal, all the power that you're ever going to need to overcome the devil no matter what he throws at you. 
That's the point he's making. But how many Christians realize that? How many Christians instead pray for God to give them strength? Oh, Lord, give us strength. Do you realize that's a a worthless prayer? It's a wasted prayer. How is God going to give you strength? The Bible talks about being strengthened with might, strengthened with mighty power and so forth. But how does that come? It doesn't come from some place that you don't already have access to. It comes from the life of God within you. So he says, be strong. Most importantly, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, this phrase, power of his might, is interesting because it means vigorous ability. Vigorous ability is talking about superhuman strength, superhuman ability. He uses the same phrase over in Ephesians chapter 1 where he's praying for the church. He prays that uh, God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Three things, that the eyes of our understanding be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Secondly, what we, that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now there's that phrase, power of his might. This time, the same two words are used, but flip-flopped. Mighty power is the way it's translated in the the King James. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? Here's what Paul is praying that we'd know. He's not praying that we'd have the power. He's praying that we'd know the power that we have. Now, folks, when you start approaching things from that angle, it changes everything. When you start approaching things from the standpoint of, Lord, open my eyes to what I already have, rather than, Lord, give me something that I don't perceive myself to to own or possess. It changes everything. And that's what Paul is praying. And that's the way that he prays it. That God would open the eyes of our understanding that we would know what is the greatness, the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Now, how does it work in us as believers? According to his mighty power. According to his vigorous ability. The vigorous ability that we already have within us. So be strong in the Lord. It's an imperative. It's a command. That means it's a choice. You don't have to be. But the Bible and the Holy Ghost instructs you to be. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now he tells you how. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand. Notice this phrase, that you may be able to withstand. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation says, when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. And he talks about having the armor of God on. Now, a lot of people get hung up with verse 12 because they, they see that what we wrestle against, we wrestle against the devil, and he talks about the devil, four different aspects or four different levels or four different operations of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Oh, boy, I don't know what those are, but that must be bad. And against powers. Don't know what those are either, but that sounds even worse. Now, he's going to talk about something that's even much worse Rulers of the darkness of this world. My goodness, who knew the devil had so much operations going on? Finally, he says, wicked spirits in the heavenlies or in heavenly places. My goodness, the devil's got everything covered. What are we going to do? 
And I think some people, whether consciously or not, kind of go through life with a, with a, a fear that what the devil has at his disposal is a lot greater than what we have at ours. When Paul is very simply saying, you need to know who your enemy is. The key to being strong is to know who your enemy is and know what belongs to you. So how do we overcome? How are we supposed to overcome? How are we supposed to use this strength, this mighty strength to overcome? Notice he says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. Now he tells you how to put it on. He talks about the different pieces and we won't take time to go through it. But every one of those things that he talks about putting on the armor of God comes down to one thing and one thing only. And that's knowledge. You can't use a shield of faith if you don't know what the word says belongs to you. You can't use salvation as a helmet if you don't know what salvation is. You can't have your loins girt about with truth if you don't know the truth and have a foundation of truth. Every bit of it is based on knowledge. Now that takes us back up to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles literally means trickery or deceit. But the root word means to travel over like a road. In other words, he's saying the devil has one road and one road only to travel. If you learn to guard against the devil and the operation of the devil, whether the principalities or powers or rulers of the darkness of this world or wicked spirits in heavenly places, if you learn the one way that the devil travels over from the spirit realm to attack you, then you can guard that and make that a defensive position and defeat him every time. And that is attained and achieved through knowledge. Now let me prove it to you. Hold your finger here and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's writing the church at Corinth. Same author. Different letter. And he says, for though we walk. This is verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh. We do not war after the flesh. Well, that's the same thing he just said over in uh, um, Ephesians 6. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now he's calling it a war rather than a wrestle. But it's still a fight, isn't it? He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, he's saying we have the spiritual weapons necessary to overcome the devil and defeat him every time. God did not leave us defenseless. God did not leave us ill-equipped. So whether it's sickness that we're attacked with or financial problems that we're attacked with or depression that we're attacked with or whatever else, family problems, whatever else the devil has to throw at us, no matter the means or the form of his attack, you've got the ability to overcome him. And that strength, that ability is in Christ where you are. You don't have to go looking for it. You just have to know that it's there. So what's the defensive position that we should take to be able to overcome the devil no matter what his attack is? Well, he tells you very simply, for though the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty through God, meaning in Christ, to the pulling down of strongholds, how do we do that? How do we pull down the strongholds? How do we defeat the devil? What's the means whereby we employ this power that's in Christ, that's in us, that can defeat the devil every time? Verse 5, casting down imaginations. Now remember, the devil has only one road that he travels. 
There's only one road that the devil travels over. It's a road of trickery. It's a road of deceit. In other words, the battlefield is the mind. The only place the devil can defeat you is in the mind. But if you learn to use the knowledge that comes from God's word as to who we are and what Jesus has done for us, you can defeat him every time. Now, some people, when they hear that, think that it's a, it comes down to a debate. You're not supposed to debate with the devil. You're supposed to defeat him through the knowledge of the word. He wants to debate. That's part of his road to trickery. He wants to get you thinking about things so that you can try to come up with some kind of answer. Because, folks, no matter how smart we think we are, the devil has an intellect that we cannot compare with. But we have an intellect that can defeat him. It's called the mind of Christ. See, the battlefield being the mind does not mean that we've got to know everything in the Bible. It means we have to know what to think. That's what it means. It means we have to know what to think and how to think. So he says, here's the way to defeat the enemy. These are the weapons of our warfare. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, he's saying the way to defeat the devil is to learn to think according to God's word instead of the devil's thoughts. Train your mind to think God's word. You know how the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that we're to renew our mind? We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? A renewed mind is not somebody that knows everything that the Bible says. The renewed mind is the mind that thinks first in every situation, in every contest or or attack of the enemy. That the first thought is, what does the word say? That's the renewed mind. The renewed mind is the mind that has been trained to think, what does the word say? Now, if you don't know what the word says about your specific situation or the attack or the uh, circumstance that you're facing, go find out. But you're transformed by training yourself to think in line with God's word and not in line to what circumstances say or the devil tries to tell you. And that's exactly what Paul is saying is the key to being strong in the Lord. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able. Here's what enables you to do it. That you may be able to stand against the wiles, the trickery, the deceit, or the traveling over of the devil. That means hold your position without the devil defeating you. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Think the word, in other words. Think what the word says about who you are and what you have and what Jesus has done for you so that you may be able to withstand when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, prepared yourself to think according to the word, stand therefore. Stand therefore. You know where it looks to me like a lot of Christians miss it? A lot of Christians seem to have the idea, and we talk a lot about authority, and we talk about Jesus' authority, and Jesus cursed things, and they cursed fig trees, and they died overnight. 
And Jesus spoke to the devil and the devil left instantly in most cases and, or in many cases at least. It seems to me that a lot of people get the idea that victory in our Christian walk should be an almost instantaneous type of event. That every time the devil raises up his head, we're supposed to speak the word. And as soon as we speak the word, the devil takes off running in sheer terror. But the Bible talks about victory as being able to stand and withstand the storms that the enemy brings against you. In other words, victory is outlasting the devil in most cases. And if that were not the case, then what Jesus told us about suffering tribulation in this world would not be true. He said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now, what does that mean? It seems to me that a lot of Christians seem to have the idea, and the Bible doesn't say it, but they kind of interpret it this way because they like it, would like to think in line with this, that tribulation means the devil raises up his head and you whack him. You know that, that, that uh, uh, arcade game? Whack-a-mole. These things pop up and you take this club and you hit it like that. Well, I think a lot of Christians think that's the way that we're supposed to operate in the name of Jesus. Now, i got to admit, there are some cases where it's like that and it's fun. But life is not whack-a-mole. The devil has a right to be here on this earth. And whether we like it or not, since we are on this earth, the devil who has stolen Adam's lease, he's got a right to operate here. So for us to command him to leave, wouldn't it be great if we could just command him to go into the pit of hell and never have to worry about him again? But folks, even Adam didn't have that authority. Do you realize what an injustice it would have been if Adam had had the authority to get rid of the devil from the face of the earth once and for all and God didn't tell him to do it? Do you realize what an injustice that would have been? Well, it's clear that God didn't tell him to do it. So then we have to ask the question, why didn't God tell him to do it? And the answer is very simple and it's obvious. And that is because God cast the devil into the earth when he rebelled against him in heaven. He's got a right to be here. Well, if he's got a right to be here, that means he's got a right to operate. And since you're here in the territory, the boundaries within his lease, he has a right to attack you. Now, you have a right not to succumb to his attack. And you have a right to withstand his attack so that you regain and maintain your victory in any and every area. But the idea that we're never going to be attacked is just foolish. But some people get that idea, it seems. Some people think that that faith and authority means that you'll never have any problems with the devil. Well, folks, if that's true, then Paul sure did miss it. Because he had trouble with the devil everywhere he went. And Jesus kept telling him to go from one place to another. And the next place he went to, he ran into more trouble than the last place. Paul understood what it meant to withstand the devil. In fact, the one time that the Bible tells us that he prayed for the persecution, we don't know if it was uh, just the devil in general that was stirring up persecution or if it was some specific individual. He, made, he mentioned a couple of people in his ministry that stirred up trouble against him, uh, long-lasting trouble. So he may have been praying about them or somebody like them. Or he may have just been praying about the devil that's behind all the persecution. Either way, he prayed. The Bible says he prayed three times for that to be taken from him. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he's saying the power that you've already got will enable you to withstand any and every attack that comes against you. 
Well, I'm sure that's not the way Paul wanted to go. Paul's praying to be able to do something about it once and for all so that he never has to deal with it again. Wouldn't that be great? How many of you would sign up for that plan? And I'll raise both hands on that one. But that's not the way it works. So instead of bemoaning the fact that it's not like that, why don't we just get with the program and operate according to the power that God has given us? And the power that God has given us in Christ that is put at our disposal will withstand the attacks of the enemy so that you can maintain your victory. Now that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what the Holy Ghost is directing Paul to tell us. And nobody would know better than Paul with all the trouble that he ever had with the devil. I wonder how he learned this stuff. By withstanding the the devil's attacks. It would be foolish for us to think that Paul was never attacked with, with sickness and disease. Why would the devil give him a pass? He tried to stop him in every other way. He inspired people to beat him, to stone him. To throw him in prison time after time after time. He created circumstances of storms and that caused shipwrecks and so forth. Sickness and disease is about the only thing that Paul doesn't mention on the list of things that the devil brought against him. But it seems to me to be inconsistent with the way the devil operates if he didn't at least attack him with sickness and disease. Now, I'm not talking about something big like cancer, if that were the case. And Paul probably would have mentioned it. But just like the devil attacks you and me, seems to me like he wouldn't have given him a pass. He'd attacked him in the same way. He understood what it was like. Do you realize how Paul's ministry would have been just absolutely shut down by sickness and disease? If Paul had not been able to walk from place to place, he spent thousands of miles and thousands of hours walking. Do you realize how sickness and disease could have taken him out? But the devil wants to take you and me out with it too. As a matter of fact, I don't think the devil cares what takes us out as long as he can get us some, get something that does the job. But no matter what area of attack he brings, the Bible says that you have the power in Christ that works in you, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to overcome anything and everything the devil brings. Now let me show you something else. Turn with me over to... Uh, uh, well, well, I'm, don't let me get ahead of myself here. Let's stop and talk a little bit more about this. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. When the Bible says, stand therefore, having done all to stand, stand therefore armed with the armor of God or clothed with the armor of God so that you can withstand the devil's attacks. What is it that we have to withstand? Or maybe another way to say that is, what is it the devil's trying to get us to do so that he can defeat us? It's obvious that he can't do it on his own. It's obvious that he can't just make things happen the way that he wants them to happen. Because the Bible says we have power to be able to defeat him. So if the battlefield is in the mind, what is he trying to get us to think? What should we, if we know that, then we can learn to defend in that specific area and walk in the strength that God has given us. That makes sense, doesn't it? Well, look at Mark chapter 11. Jesus is explaining the operation of faith. 
have faith in God. Verse 22. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. It's the only condition that he places on verse 23. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Contrary to doubting in your heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So if we take just verse 23, and, and the devil's smart enough to listen in on this. If he didn't listen in at the time that Jesus said it, he certainly found out since. If he knows that this thing called faith is hindered by doubt in the heart. And this thing called faith will receive anything and everything that we need from God. It's our means or path to victory. John said, wrote to the church and said, this is the victory that overcomes the world. That would mean the, the devil's attacks, even our faith. Well, if the devil is smart enough to know that faith is the means of victory for anything and everything that we need or seek after in life, then he's smart enough to know that the battlefield of the mind is all about trying to get you to doubt in your heart. Because that's the only thing that can stop faith. So what's he going to work overtime to do? He's going to work to try to make you think in such a way that makes you doubt in your heart. Now what is doubting in your heart? Doubting in your heart very simply is speaking contrary to the, what the word of God says. Or in this case in Mark eleven twenty three, speaking contrary to the thing that you've already said. What you said to the mountain. The victory that you proclaimed concerning the mountain. Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. That means your words or the faith is all about your words. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. In other words shall not say anything to the contrary. Well now why does he say doubting in the heart? Why didn't he just say and doesn't speak to the contrary? Because doubting in the heart means to doubt. Well, let's talk about believing in the heart. Believe in the heart is what we're supposed to do. To believe in the heart means to believe independent of your five physical senses. That's what your heart is. Your heart is your spirit. And you can't contact your spirit with your five physical senses. That's why you can't contact God with the five physical senses. You can't contact God with your feelings because God's a spirit. So we're supposed to believe independent of our five physical senses. Therefore, the opposite of believing in the heart is doubting in the heart, which means believe or, and or speak according to what we can see or feel or the five physical senses. So Jesus is very simply saying, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not speak according to what he sees or feels. But instead believe in his heart according to that which was spoken. Believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So the devil's number one job when you speak faith, speak words of faith, the devil's number one job is to get you thinking something to the effect that it's not working so that you speak contrary to the victory you've already declared. He goes further in verse 24, talking about the prayer of faith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So what's the devil's work 
What's his number one job? What's he going to work overtime to try to get you to do once you pray the prayer of faith? He's going to try to make you think that you haven't believed, that you haven't received when you prayed. He's going to try to make you think that your prayer wasn't heard because you can't see the answer, because it doesn't feel like anything's changed, that it's not working. If you can learn to guard and shore up in those two areas, you can defeat the devil every time. You can defeat the devil every time. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. In this same vein, remember James wrote to the church and said, talking about faith that doesn't waver. He said, let him ask in faith, talking about receiving wisdom from God in the middle of trials and trouble when the devil attacks. He says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. He said, for let not that man, the man that wavers from his faith, or the man that doubts in his heart, those are interchangeable terms, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. James is saying the same thing, just in different, using different terminology. James simply says, if you move off your position of faith, which Jesus called doubting in the heart, he said, don't even think that you're going to receive anything from God, which means the only way to receive from God is to have unwavering faith. What is unwavering faith? Jesus defined that as believing and holding fast to the words that you speak. Now in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, Paul, I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. It's the Holy Ghost that inspired it. So here's the Holy Spirit telling us the key to victory. He said, but without faith it's impossible to please him. Talking about God. Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe two things. Number one, that he is. And number two, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, I really don't like this translation. I'm sorry, I just, I'm sure the translators did the best that they could and the words are not, it's not that the words are wrong and that they use the wrong words uh, in the translation. But it just doesn't carry any meaning. So let me interpret this for you and give you my own translation of this. That we are, you judge this and see if there's any truth to this. Let's think this through. Where do you learn who God is? Is there any source for learning who God is? Can't believe in who he is, believe that he is who he is, unless you learn about who he says that he is, can you? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If you don't know who he is, then you can't believe who he is. Well, where do we gain information about who he is? if not the word of God. Is there any place that you can learn who God is apart from or separate from the word? No. Well, see, for me then, it makes better sense and it would do me a whole lot more good if he interpreted that as believing in the truth of his word. Instead of believing that God is, If it had been translated, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe in the truth of God's word. Because that is believing that God is who he is. You can't believe that God is who he is without knowing that he said who he said he was in his word. 
And then the second part that we're supposed to believe and to believe that he, God, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Is there any way to seek God apart from his word? Well, we can seek him in prayer. But if you're praying contrary to the word or apart from what the word says, your prayers aren't effective, so you're not finding out anything about him that way either. So I would interpret this, and and I'll, I'll tell you how I got there. When I was in Bible school, the Lord spoke this verse of Scripture to me, and it changed my financial situation completely. I had spent a lot of time seeking after the Lord on a a crusade trip that we went for almost, well, it was several weeks, almost a month, up in the New England part of the New England states, northeastern part of the country. And we were on a bus trip and and a lot of hours a day driving from one place to another, a lot of one-night meetings and two-night meetings and stuff like that. And so I had a lot of time, and the Lord had, had really put on my heart to seek him, seek his face. Well, I didn't know how you do that. How do you seek God's face? I didn't know. I'd never thought about seeking God's face before. And so I was kind of in a quandary. So I went to the only place that I knew might be a good source, and that's the Word. So I started digging out of the concordance. It didn't have computers back then. Sure would have made it easier if we had. But I started digging out through the concordance and writing out the scriptures that talk about seeking God. What I'm doing is I'm searching the Word for God. I'm searching to find out who God is. I'm diligently seeking him by studying through the word. So when the Lord quickened this to me, he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, you've been diligently seeking me. I thought, have I? I've been trying, but I didn't know if I was being successful. Well, the only way that I was doing it was by searching through the word. Well, applying that to this verse of scripture, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, must believe the truth of his word. And must believe that God is a rewarder of them that hold fast to the truth of his word. That's what diligently seeking him is. Diligent means don't give up. Seeking God means searching the word. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe in the truth of his word and diligently hold fast to that truth. Now, let me, let me show you how true that is. I'm going to remind you. You don't have to turn back here. I'll read it to you. But in Genesis chapter 15... After um, Abraham has come back from the defeat of the four enemy kings that took Lot and his family and all of his goods, he comes back from defeating the, um, doing the run the night raid and bringing back Lot and all the stuff. And he meets uh, Melchizedek on the way. And Melchizedek is the priest unto God. And uh, Abraham gives him, offers him tithes of all. The king of Sodom tries to make a deal with him, keep the stuff, just give me the people and stuff. And, uh, and Abraham declares the vow that he made before God that he had raised his hand to the Lord that he wouldn't take anything from the spoils of the victory because he didn't want anybody saying that they had made Abraham rich. So Abraham is showing his character in a couple of ways. Number one, he pays tithes to the priest, the high priest of God, Melchizedek. And secondly, he shows that not only 
Is he more concerned about his name than he is wealth? He doesn't want anything that God doesn't give him. Now, that ends chapter 14. Chapter 15 is where God appears to Abraham immediately following these things. And in my opinion, as a response to two things, number one, his tithe and his vow and his declaration that he doesn't want anything that God doesn't give him. So in chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, here's what God told him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now compare that with what we just read in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe in the truth of his word. Is faith not called a shield of faith in the New Testament? Faith like a shield in other words. Faith that protects you. Faith that withstands the, the attacks of the enemy. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. When, when God says to Abraham, fear not, I'm your shield. He's saying, I'm your defense. Why? Because I am who I am. But how do we know who he is? By what he told us in his word. And then the next thing he says is, and I'm your exceeding great reward. Now those words literally mean vehemently increasing payment. I'm your vehemently increasing payment. Now, vehement has to do with aggressiveness. In other words, God says, I will aggressively increase you. I will aggressively repay you. I will aggressively reward you. Now, remember, that's one of the things that, you, that is a requirement for pleasing God, is to believe that he's a rewarder of them that seek him through the word. I will aggressively reward you. I'll defend you through the truth of my word and I will aggressively reward you. And that's exactly what it says pleases God today. Well, God doesn't change. If it pleased God in Abraham's day, it pleases him today. So what does that mean for us? It means that these are the ways that the devil is going to attack us because it's the only way he can gain an inch. He's going to try to make us think that our defenses are down or that our defenses are not working and that God won't reward us for acting on the word. Hebrews chapter 10. Paul, still I believe it's Paul, the Holy Ghost inspires the writer to write these things. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. That's exactly what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three. Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, don't waver in other words, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He'll be rewarded by his words coming to pass. Exactly what Paul's saying in Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. The word profession is the word confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, Why? For he is faithful that promised. In other words, he's a rewarder. He rewards your faith. He rewards your confession of faith. Notice in verse 35, still talking about the same thing. He says, cast not away therefore your confidence. 
Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Here's how God rewards you aggressively through the confidence that you place in him. And that confidence is the same thing as faith. And it comes only one way. And this has only one foundation. And that's the word of God. So what's the devil going to try to do? He's going to try to make you waver in your confession. He's going to try to make you doubt your confidence. Question your confidence based on thoughts that come from circumstances. And if he can't do that, he cannot win. If he can't get you to change what you say, if he can't get you to doubt your confidence in God, he cannot win. It's impossible. And he knows that. He's counting on you not knowing that, but he knows it. That's why he has one and only one road that he travels. It's the road into your mind. He travels the road bringing thoughts to try to make you doubt, to try to make you change your words, to speak contrary to what the word of God says. He tries to make you question the confidence that you started off with. And folks, it's easy to pray and get all stirred up, make a confession of faith. Bless God, God's going to see me through. And then time goes by. More time goes by. The devil starts whispering in your ear, saying that if this was going to work, it'd work by now, wouldn't it? All he wants you to do is pick up that thought and think, well, gee, I wonder. Maybe it would have worked by now if it was a real thing. That's what Paul is talking about. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great, great, everybody say great, great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. In other words, Paul is saying the same thing here that he said to the Ephesians. If Paul is the author, like I said, I believe he is. But if Paul is the author to the book written to the Hebrews, he's saying exactly the same thing he said to the Ephesians. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Put on the whole armor of God, the knowledge of how things work, the knowledge of who God is, the knowledge of the truth of God's word and who you've been made to be in Christ so that you can withstand when evil attacks you. And having done everything to stand, stand therefore. Hold your ground. Well, what kind of ground are we supposed to hold? We're supposed to hold our ground without wavering, without changing what we think about the truth of God's word, without changing what we say concerning our confession of faith. We're supposed to hold fast at the end of the the battle just as strong as when we started the battle because God is the rewarder of those that hold fast to his word. If we do that, it's impossible for the devil to win. We've got God's word on it. It's impossible for God to lie. Fear not, Abraham. I love verse chapter 15, verse 1 of Genesis. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I am your aggressive increase in payment. I will aggressively reward you. Why would God aggressively reward Abraham? Because of his attitude of faith toward God. 
He believed in who God was. And he decided that he didn't want anything from the world that God didn't put in his hands. That's a pretty easy mark to hit, really, if you think about it. We've got more reason to take that position than Abram did. Jesus has done more for us throughout through the new birth than he ever did for Abram in, in the entirety of his life. Amen? Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Be strong in him. You've got all the power you're ever going to need to overcome the devil. Let's all stand. Say this after me. I believe God's word. I believe God is who he says he is. And I believe God's a rewarder of those who hold fast to his word. Jesus took my infirmities and bare my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I am healed. Therefore, I believe that Jesus is my healer. I also believe that God rewards me with divine health. Because I hold fast to the truth that Jesus is my healer. He is aggressively working in my body to effect a healing and a cure in me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. I refuse to turn loose of what I believe. I refuse to speak contrary to God's word. I refuse to cast away my confidence in Jesus as my healer. Therefore, there's nothing the devil can do to enforce sickness in me because Jesus has made me free. You've got to realize that makes God smile. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. God's looking for those that he can show himself strong in behalf of. Do you realize he just found a group? That's what causes him to find us. Because that's the kind of faith that pleases him. Hallelujah. Lord, we bless your name. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you, Father, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, no matter what the doctors have said, no matter how long it's been, we thank you that healing is ours in Jesus' name. We'll never turn loose of that, Father. We will hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering because you are faithful who promised. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Have a great week.